Guys, we are uh, in week two of our gospel-centered family series, and uh, it's looking like it could be upwards around a 14-week series taking us through the, uh, through the summer. And, uh, and really what, uh, as you're turning to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, will be our text for this morning. Um, really what's bringing us to doing this series, it, it's somewhat of a, of a repeat of a series we did five years ago on a Wednesday night called Gospel Family. And while it was on a Wednesday night, many people weren't able to make it. And, uh, and then, you know, our church dynamic has changed so much in the last five years that uh, I've just been waiting till we were in Ephesians and got to Ephesians chapter five on just those key family passages, you know, husbands, wives, children, even employees and employers. And, uh, and so really we're going to be going through Ephesians in the next few weeks, Ephesians chapters five and six. But I wanted to take us back to the foundation of marriage and family and to look at some Genesis, to look at uh, the foundational and ultimate things uh, regarding uh, a gospel-centered family. And so um, let's pray together before we get into the word. And Lord, we are gathered in the name of Jesus on a day that you have called holy and set apart, a day that the early church fathers and, uh, and, and those that have gone before us have just specially set aside to concentrate on just that you're the creator, just as we're studying today, that that, that means something, uh, your design, your created order, uh, that you're the redeemer, both of Israel out of uh, Egypt, but also the world out of, uh, out of sin, God. And, uh, and you are resurrected. We don't worship a God that's dead in some Palestinian tomb, but you are alive and you're in our midst and you give us the same spirit that rose you from the dead to be in us and upon us so that we could live a life and, and be in marriages and have children and parent and be in employee relationships. We can live in a way that is effective and glorifying to you. And so, Lord, we just come today and we just say, Lord, we don't got it. We got nothing, Lord. We, in and of ourselves, we have failed tremendously. Even on our best day, it's so fleshy and it can just, it can just be more glorifying to us than to you. And we just pray that today you would um, teach us what it is to live in light of the cross, in light of death to self, in light of sacrificial living, in light of love, uh, in light of victory, in light of the power of the Spirit. And so we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, gospel-centered family. The gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in scripture is either preparing for the gospel, presenting the gospel, or participating in the gospel. In the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the story provides an ultimate solution for our sin and our failures and our fallings. That's for today, that's for tomorrow, That's for the day we stand before God. That's for the day after that. This also means that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is an endless fountain of God's grace in your marriage and in our families. You know, being a parent, um, I'm really thinking of my two-year-old Titus right now, and you know, we're getting him ready for church and he's got these, these cowboy shirts, you know, and, and I, he's got these pajamas that are just the cutest things. They were Russell's and now they're his and now he's almost grown out and they're like 1950s retro cowboy jammies. You know, I just love them and I have the hardest time buttoning those things up while they're on him. Any other dads, you know, you're like, why do they make them? Or they, oh, why doesn't it just zip like everything else, you know? And nine times out of 10, he gets up and he starts cruising and you just see that, that you started on the wrong button, you know? And silly kid, you know, but problem is, you know, I was out 
uh, getting ready to ride at the shotgun ranch last week and it was cold and I didn't bring a coat. And what was I thinking not bringing a coat? And Joe's dad was out there and he's like, I brought an extra coat. It's, my wife was using it the other day, but you can use it. I'm like, okay, you know, and uh, put it on and trying to look like I kind of know what I'm doing out there and get all dudded up and standing there waiting for the guys and Oh no, you know what, I just missed like two buttons. I mean, it couldn't have been more out of shape. <laughs> For a shirt to be buttoned up properly, one must get the first button in the right spot. And then all the rest just follow and line up and you look good. And we're gonna look at in the scriptures the buttons and how they line up for marriage and family. You get the first thing right. As last week we looked at the foundation of marriage, that it is God's design. And we look at the ultimate thing in marriage, that it is for God's glory. You look at those things before you look at the rest and it'll just fall into place. A.W. Tozer said, what comes in, or he asked, what comes into our minds when we think about God? He said, it's the most important thing about us. And really, that's button number one in my book. What comes to your mind when you think about God? That's why we emphasize the gospel, seeing yourself in the light of his grace, you a sinner, having been redeemed and bought at a price, the precious blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's been said that marriage is street-level theology, and that on a wedding day, we want to see two theologians at the altar. Dave Harvey said the most profound thing that shapes anybody's worldview is their understanding about God. Now, this is all important. It's the first button. It's foundational. Because as we looked at last week, when we're talking marriage and family, we're talking about it being a sovereign creation of the Lord God. If it was our design or our thinkings, then we could treat it however we wanted. Marry whoever you want, whatever, whatever gender you want, forever, however long you want. Your courtship or dating can look however you want it. You can end it when you want it. Whatevs. But because it's not our design and our creation, we're accountable to the one who has creative rights over it. Recently watched CNN series, The 60s and The 70s and Really good series, actually, and a history buff like me, but I specifically remember watching the episodes about the feminist movement and watching about the late Betty Friedan, who wrote this about marriage. Marriage has existed for the benefit of men and has been a legally sanctioned method of control over women. We must work to destroy it. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not to live individually with men. All of history must be rewritten in terms of oppression of women. We must go back to ancient female religions like witchcraft. Gloria Steinem, also a feminist writer and, and um, part of the, the movement in the 60s and 70s, wrote, For the sake of those who wish to live in equal partnership, we have to abolish and reform the institution of legal marriage. Now, if it was our creation, let's rethink it. Let's rework it. How can we make it work best for us? But because that's not the foundation, because Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and even chapter 3 are the foundation, we have to ask ourselves, in what ways do I have any right to stand up against such a thing as God's design? The world has been trying to answer problems within marriage sociologically. And the church has begun to adopt that practice. 
But what it has turned into is a diminishing of God's order and design of marriage and an idolatrous relook at it. So not approaching it, even in this series, sociologically, so much as theologically. The family is not the invention of men. So it's not for him to do as he pleases. It's the holy creation of the Lord God. And so what we get into today is not only is the foundation God's design, but now the ultimate purpose of marriage is that it's for God's glory. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, where we see that man and women were made in the image of God. And we see that that has a direct tie to what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, which we'll get into in depth in weeks to come, that even marriage between a man and a woman were created in the image of God. Let's look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27 together. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When we think of God's image, we often think of morality and dominion over creation. We think of the social aspects that we can write and communicate and speak, the the intellectual and reasoning that we have, just as our creator has. We think of the spiritual, that we are immortal and we are creative. Theologians call this doctrine of the image of God the imago Dei. And something that's interesting is that man was the only creature created in the image of God of God. The fact that man is in the image of God means that he is like God and represents God. The meaning of the Genesis passage we just read is that God planned to make a creature similar to himself. The word image is used all throughout the scripture or the word likeness often used in similar references. The image and likeness refer to something that is similar, but not identical to the thing to which it represents. The word image can also be used of something that represents something else. For instance, a reflection. One way to think about that we were created in the image of God is that we are like mirrors. That when people see us, we are a reflection of the glory of God. This is true within our person. This is true within our marriages and our families. This is true within the church community. That we are reflections of the glory of God and the story of God. Now, in Genesis, the fall shattered our mirrors so that our reflections are a bit distorted. But the good news is, is that Jesus has mended and patched and glued our mirrors back together so that we can continue to glorify God once more. And so the question is, how is marriage a reflection of God? How is your marriage currently reflecting God? In Genesis chapter 5 verse 3, It says that Adam lived 130 years and he begot a son in his own likeness after his image and he named him Seth. Now, the more we understand God and man and see similarities, the more we understand what it means to be made like God and in his image. Image and likeness of God refers to every way that man is like God. In this Genesis passage regarding Adam's child, Scripture doesn't show us every way Seth was like Adam here. Whether his complexion or his temperament, his athletic abilities, his sense of humor, maybe he had Adam's baby blue eyes, or his tendency to fall into sin fast, that list would be too restrictive. 
When we speak of image and being made in something's image, we're speaking of all the ways that Seth was like Adam are all the areas that he was made in Adam's image. In the same way, all the ways we are like God our Father are the ways that we are made in his image. For instance, you put me side to side with my mom and my dad, there's so many ways I look like my mom and act like my mom. And there's so many ways I don't look like my mom and act like my mom. You put me next to my dad and it's amazing. My dad passed away uh, almost 17 years ago. And the way I say things sometimes, I'm like, oh my goodness, that was totally my dad. Or I look at my hands and the way I move my hands, I'm like, you know, I'll just watch my hand just sitting there. I'm like, oh my gosh, that just looks just like my dad's. You know, there's different ways that, that I'm like my dad. There's ways that I am in their image and made in their image, just as Seth was in his dad, Adam's. And so we look at the attributes of God and we see that there are shared and unshared attributes in ways that we are created in the image of God. Here's some attributes or qualities or characters of God that we do not share with him. For instance, he is eternal. He was in the beginning. You go backwards as far as you ever could and God was there. And he's going to be as far forwards as you could ever go. He is infinite. He has no bounds or limits. 1 Kings 8, 27 says he is measureless, but we are measured. He is completely independent of his creatures and creation. He's omniscient. That is all-knowing. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. He's omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. He's called in the scriptures, Almighty God or El Shaddai. He's immutable, which means he does not change. And he's sovereign which means his purpose will be established and he will accomplish all his good pleasure. What he begins to bring to fruition will be completed because he is in total control. Those are all things that I don't share with God. Not omnipotent, not omniscient, not immutable, not eternal. All right? I wasn't there before the world began. I am created. You are created. But then there are attributes that we do share with our God and that God is spirit and we have a spirit. God is holy, separated from all that is unclean and evil, and he is completely pure because of the blood of the cross. We too are holy and clean and completely pure. God is righteous and absolutely just in all his ways. And as we walk in the spirit of God, we too can walk in righteousness as we are considered righteous, having been justified by the blood of Jesus. God is a God of love, 1 John tells us. And he has made us creatures of love as well. He is good and he is truth and trustworthy and faithful. He is merciful, showing compassion and he is long-suffering, patient to restrain his wrath. These are all things that we are called to walk in as Christians that will be fruit naturally coming from our redeemed lives. These are things that were pre-fall in our parents, Adam and Eve. God is beautiful and people are beautiful as well. God is gracious and benevolent and generous. And he's put that trait within his creation. God is a jealous God. And we too can live lives of even the good sort of jealousy. Desirable and sacrificial are attributes of our God. Attributes that he has put towards his children as well. There's special aspects of our likeness to God. Our moral traits and our spiritual traits, our mental traits. And then where we begin to see it, even within the marriage and family world, the relational traits, the depth of interpersonal harmony is much greater within man than within animals. It's great as man sees it within marriage and family, and community. 
We're greater than the angels in this aspect as angels are not married, nor are they given in marriage, Jesus tells us. They don't have children or live in the company of the saints. In marriage, we reflect the Holy Trinity as we have the same equality, but differences in roles and functions. Man reflects God in these ways within marriage and within family. Now, Jesus himself was in the image of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, in Colossians 1, 16. In Colossians, we see he is the image of the invisible God. It's the word icon. He is the icon, the exact likeness of God. He's the first ranked over all creation. Jesus is God. In marriage, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives are exhorted to submit to their own husbands. And then there's this phrase, as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as, these are comparative statements here, the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Following is a quote that has completely changed my heart and, and the ability, not even that my heart was in the wrong place, but my ability to communicate what Paul is speaking of when he speaks of submission is it's a word that is so hated by our culture. It's by Tim Savage in the book, No Ordinary Marriage. He writes, Submission represents a call to wives to give to their husbands what belongs to the wives by rights. Fully equal to their husbands, godly wives choose to put the needs of their husbands before their own. They are not subordinate, but with God's help, listen to this, they willingly subordinate themselves. It is the volitional aspect of subordination that makes it so revolutionary. It is also what makes it so exalting. It was, listen to this, talk about image of God. So a wife willingly submitting to her husband is living out the image of God for marriage, reflecting God. Listen to this. It was the willing submission of Jesus that paved the way for the power of heaven to invade what would have otherwise been the unremarkable existence of a Galilean carpenter. The humility of Jesus unto death precipitated an outpouring of blessing that continues to this day. So we'll talk about that more when we get into Ephesians, and we're going to even quote that again because it's so impactful for us to realize as men and women are created in the image of God to reflect and imitate God and all the ways that they've been designed to do so, when we talk of marriage and family, wives and, and women get so bent out of shape when they hear the word submit, but they have a misunderstanding, twisted view, and rightly so, because it's not taught biblically, nor is it the example even there, and it's not taught gospel-centeredly, where Jesus provides the model and the motivation to do so. When we speak of submission, we give women an exalted role to basically imitate Jesus, the God-man, who as the second person of the Trinity was completely equal in power and rank to, uh, and, 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 in, and in glory to the Father, but was given a separate role and function to where he willingly said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. And there in Ephesians chapter 5, the, the image of God, a mago day likeness picture goes on as husbands are told to love their wives, just as Christ also loved the church. So there's the image of God shining forth in a gospel-centered marriage. Husbands, you love your wives, and it's a picture. It will reflect Jesus loving the church and giving himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her 
with the washing of water by the word. Again, there's, there's the gospel coming out. There's, there's an image of God coming out as he washed us with the water of the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. In Paul's writing, it's almost like he was talking about marriage, and then he's just full on talking about like another subject now. Now he's talking about ecclesiology, studying the church. And then he comes back and he says, uh, he says, Ephesians 5.32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. I was talking about marriage. I was talking about husband. I was talking about wives. I was talking about the roles and how the roles just display the, the character and the attributes and the glory of God. And as I just keep talking about it, all of a sudden in just this natural thing, I'm talking ecclesiology and I'm talking the saving love of Christ because they're not separated. It's the same thing. It's an image. It's a type. It's a picture that illustrates a truth. It's a wonderful thing. God did not need to create man, yet he did. And the ultimate reason for doing so was for his own glory. He doesn't need us. He had perfect love and fellowship within the Trinity. You see that in Jesus' prayer in John 17, 5 and 24. He did not need us for any reason. That's not an insult. That's not a slap. He just didn't. He, he is completely sufficient on his own. He writes to us through Isaiah in 43, 7, everyone who's called by my name, whom I have created for my own glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have created him for my own glory. It doesn't mean there's not also wonderful things and reasons why he created, but at the end of the day, it comes down to, I will be exalted because I'm God. Just the way it is, you know, it's just the way it is. In Ephesians 1, 11, it says, in him we've obtained an inheritance. We have an inheritance and we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who first trusted Christ, listen to this, should be to the praise of his glory. And finally, the scripture that you could probably quote with me, therefore, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So this is, this is the doctrine of the Imago Dei. This is what it boils down to that we were created in the image of God. Dr. Wayne Grudem writes, this fact guarantees our lives are significant. When we first realized that God did not need to create us and does not need us for anything, we could conclude that our lives have no importance at all. But scripture tells us that we were created to glorify God, indicating that we were important to God himself. This is the final definition of genuine importance or significance in our lives. If we are truly important to God for all eternity, then what greater measure of importance or significance could we want? Grudem goes on to say, this understanding of the creation, of the doctrine of creation of man has very practical results. When we realize that God created us to glorify him, and when we start to act in ways that fulfill that purpose, then we begin to experience an intensity of joy in the Lord that we have never known before. When we add to that the realization that God himself is rejoicing in our fellowship with him, our joy becomes inexpressible with heavenly glory. In a book that I have called 50 People Every Christian Should Know, there's a story about Matthew Henry, who I love, I love to read. He's from the 15th century. And it says that when he was on his deathbed, he said to a friend, you've been asked to take notice of sayings of dying men. This is mine. That life spent in the service of God and communion with him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this world. Those are my dying words. 
Isn't it amazing what we have made life about? We've made it about ourselves. And he who dies with the most toys wins. And, you know, how can I further my legacy rather than the chief end of man is to glorify God, reflect his radiance, and share it with the whole world, and to enjoy him forever. You see, God's glory and our joy are directly connected. Struggle with depression? I challenge you to begin to purposefully live a life that is completely centered around the glory of God in every aspect, whether it's what you eat, the shows you watch, the books you wear, the music you listen to, no matter what, is this going to glorify God and bring him pleasure? And I am telling you that your joy will become a fruit of the Holy Spirit coming out naturally and abundantly. It's not wrong for God to create man for his glory. Whose glory would you rather have him created for? Your glory? That's called idolatry. Unlike Herod in Acts chapter 12, verse 23, he was standing before his subjects in silver apparel, and people began to puff him up as the Caesarean sun shined on his garments, and he began to be radiant with silver, just a beautiful royal apparel. And they began, as he spoke, to say, Hey, Herod, you've got the voice of a god and not of a man. And it says that he received the praise, and an angel struck him down there, and he began to be eaten by worms. And Luke tells us, because he did not give glory to God. You know, when you're wearing a silver mirror outfit and people start uh, commending you, it's a perfect chance to say, ooh, look, I was created in the image of God. I'm like a mirror and I'm going to shine all that praise right back to him. But the fallen condition of man is the same that was in Lucifer when he exalted himself, desiring to be God and receive the praise. And is that not at the heart of so many of our marriages? I'm the man. And in this place, I'm kind of like God. And woman, you are going to do as I say. And when I say jump, you say how high. Now, I wish we were joking, but we all know that is very true in many circles that we live in. Tyrannical dictatorship is part of the fall that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. And so is a wife wanting to rule over her husband. Those are all parts of the curse. The gospel comes and redeems us to living in our humble service roles that reflect that of Jesus. If we ever deny our unique status as created as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of all human life. And has that not happened in our culture? Just had the gals up here sharing about the Pregnancy Resource Center, and we're trying to raise money. If we could just raise money to get people to quit slaughtering their babies who have no chance, and they are innocent, and no one is fighting for them. And you look at our culture, and we are men and women who think that we are gods, not that we are created to reflect and worship our God. Not only do we see it in the value of human life, but we see it in the value of our spouse's life. We tend to see our spouses merely as a higher form of an animal. And some of you guys, you kind of deserve that. He is a brute. We begin to treat others like this. We also lose much of our sense of meaning in life when we forget the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Do you remember in Matthew when the Pharisees try to trick Jesus up and they say, you know, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're trying to trip him up because if he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then they'd say, what kind of an Israelite are you? You want to be part of that pagan, idolatrous, oppressive government that's over us? People would kill Jesus for that. And if he said, uh, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees could get Jesus to be killed by the Romans for leading some sort of, uh, some sort of coup, some sort of anti-government militia. 
And Jesus, what's been called as one of the, the most incredible answers uh, with reason, says, hey, let me see a coin. And then he says, whose image is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then he said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The money had Caesar's image on it and therefore belonged to Caesar. Man has the image of God upon him and should therefore render his heart and life and everything to his creator and his lordship. Marriage also has the stamp of the image of the Lord God and therefore is also not for personal gain, but for the, image, for the glory of the one whose image it was created. John Piper writes, the most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it's God's doing. And the most ultimate thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it's for God's glory. It's the top button. God's doing, God's design, God's glory. And when we start to line up our lives under this theological truth, it will all just begin to fall into line. And in the end of the day, we have such tremendous joy because, whew, as Billy Graham said, marriage can be the closest thing to heaven on earth, and it can also be the closest thing to hell on earth. Can I get an amen? amen. Seriously? She's sitting right next to you. Anyways. It exists ultimately for him. And until you understand your marriage and your family within this context, you will always walk with a limp. Until everything in your home and about your life lines up under that, your marriage and family will have a virus. Savage writes, marriage can be rewarding, but, and here is the crucial, crucial qualification, such lofty ideals by no means are automatically realized. Husbands and wives must exercise vigilance. They must be committed to work for this prize. In particular, they must cling tenaciously to the one piece of equipment that guarantees a safe ascent to the marital summit. They must fasten themselves to the rope that binds them together as one. And what is that rope? It is the glory of God. When husbands and wives cling firmly to the lifeline of God's glory and do so with a resolve appropriate to the importance of their joint expedition, the unbridled optimism of the wedding will be confirmed a hundred times over by an upward ascent that surpasses even their loftiest expectations. This May is it's the season for climbers to begin summiting Everest. And uh, just was there a few months ago and took a special flight and got pictures on my phone of Mount Everest and having seen the movie and read some books about just interested in Everest. Would never want to go on to Everest, but, uh, but it's interesting. And my friend Luke, who's our guide in, in Nepal, posted on his Facebook page that just on Monday, uh, there was a man from uh, Switzerland who has been known to uh, be an alpine, uh, the fastest alpine climber in the world. And essentially what he does is he puts a light pack on his back and gets a couple ice picks and some crampons. And he literally will run up the face of mountains. And there's these pictures of helicopters going around him. And he's at a dead run. He's just total in shape. And he's just, just running up the face of a mountain. And if there's a cliff, then he just chunk, chunk, and he just basically throws himself up. And it says that what most climbers do in four days, he does in three hours. This man was acclimating his lungs to Everest 29,000 feet and got up to the second highest peak there, which is Lhotse, and fell off a crevice. Died. Why did that happen? because he didn't have the tie that, that bound. He didn't have a tie off. He wasn't doing things according to the rules of mountaineering where you will live. And he died. And interesting, yesterday, another man died on Everest. He was an 86-year-old, I believe, Nepali man who was actually born and raised in the mountain. When he was 70, uh, 76 years old, he got the Guinness Book of World Records for being the oldest man to climb Everest. 
life goals, right? Well, then, uh, just a couple years ago, another guy who was like 80 just beat him and beat that record. So now he's like, well, now I got to do it. And the article actually said, when I get famous after completing this, I want to go and teach in suffering zones and speak in, in zones of suffering. Uh, but, but you know, I just keyed in on that. When I get famous, <laughs> you know, uh, when I'm famous again. And the sad tragedy is that he died at base camp yesterday uh, from what appeared to be a cardiac arrest. And it's just so sad that when we are living life for our glory and we're not fastened to the tie that binds, we won't safely ascend the summit of what God has intended for our marriages. We'll be the tragedy that falls off the crevice and our body, you know, is stuck up there. No one can take us down. The Lord desires us to be securely fastened to the rope of his design for his glory. And we'll make it. Marriages will make it. If husbands and wives are committed to these principles, then the spirit of the living God will be faithful to complete that which he's began. It's his promise. In Genesis 2, 21 through 25, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked and man and his wife were not ashamed. Adam worshiped when he saw his wife. These are the first recorded words of man in scripture, and they're known to be poetic and worship song in nature. First words of man are worshiping God for the design and the presentation of the wife. This story of the first marriage ought to move us. It's easy to miss the central point. Insight that is a centerpiece of every marriage. Divine glory reaches a zenith. There's so much glory in marriage because there's so much God in marriage. You remember from two weeks ago that God was the one that identified a deficiency. God was the one that proposed a solution to the the deficiency. He demonstrated the need. He executed a plan. And then he presented his handiwork. No other act of creation was given in so much detail as the creation of man and woman in the image of God. We want to ask for what cause should a man be united to his wife? The context of the creation account says, because of everything God has done to form this union, because of his involvement in every stage of its development, Because of the heavy allotment of glory that God invested into your partnership, we marry not primarily for our own benefit or pleasure, or even for mutual affection, or even just the joy of bearing and raising children. We marry because God did a work of unparalleled glory in creation when he built the union between husband and wife. We marry because of his glory. We marry for the glory of God. And it's so cool, you guys. We have Matthew and Jennifer here who got married yesterday, last night. Let's give them a hand. First of all, got married last night and are at church on the Lord's Day the day after. Like, praise God for that. That's incredible. Don't even know if I'd be doing that. But, you know, congrats and props to you, my brother and sister. But you know what's been so incredible is Matthew came to the Lord just a few months ago. He came back to the Lord. And he began dating Jennifer and coming to church. And you know what? The Lord has been doing a radical transformation in Matt's life. Like, it's one of those things that you can't argue with a changed life. You know that the blood of Christ has cleansed from all sin. And you know the Holy Spirit is indwelling and bringing victory after victory after victory. And Matthew and Jen were like kind of living for themselves at the beginning of their engagement. And when we presented the scriptures of God's design for marriage, Matt said, 
I can't argue with this. We've got to repent. And so they began, they repented. And then he said, you know what? Sometimes repentance is hard. Let's get this marriage two weeks out. Let's do this thing. And I said, let's do it. So we met for marriage counseling. We got together with them. And, and then, you know what? It's just like, it's like the, the cherry on top of it all is in the dining room conversation before we did the wedding in the Curvin's living room, Matt is just there giving glory to God and bringing glory to God. And, and we're at the reception dinner and he's just speaking forth the glory of God. And this is all for God's praise and all for his glory. And it's like marriage was created for the glory of God. Sorry, Matthew and Jennifer. I hope you don't mind that I'm just like using you as the example. I'm going to make an example out of you. But you know what? Matt knows as we talk to just on the phone, He's like, I want my marriage to last till I die. I want it to be built upon the rock and not upon the shifting sands. When the storms of this world come and I lose my good physique and she loses her good physique, we just become old and, you know, and just like, we're barely making it, but we're still together because it was never about what she could give for me or I could give for her. It was about the glory of God. And that's the tie that binds. Let's have the worship team Come on up. Paul Tripp said, A marriage of love, unity, and understanding is not rooted in romance. It's rooted in worship. Why you struggle in your marriage and how those struggles will ever get solved, worship is your first identity before it's ever your activity. You are a worshiper. So everything you think, desire, choose, do, or say is shaped by worship. And so let's close in worship. And maybe for the first time you would be here with your spouse and you would say, you know what? We were meant to worship together. And so here we are. We're gathered together. We're with our families. Let's begin the discipline and the practice that we were created for. Singing out worship, praying out worship, letting our body posture reflect worship so that we can begin this week living out worship, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. How we love our wives, how we serve our wives, how we lay our lives down for our wives, how we're intentional of looking at the house and how I can love my wife. I can look at her emotions and I can dwell with her with understanding. I can romance my wife. I can be physical with my wife and all of it is for the glory of God. And wives, as we look at our day and we realize, you know what? We may be equal in every way. In fact, I may even be superior in so many ways. But the design of God is that I willingly subordinate myself for the glory of God. That I would look to see how I can help and minister to my husband and give him respect as God calls me to. Not for the purpose of putting me underneath his foot, but for the purpose of the example of Jesus being shown to my neighbor and to my children and to this world, that Jesus, who is equal in value, willingly subordinated himself to the Father, even to the point of crucifixion, the excruciating death on a Roman cross. As we close in song, we want to just respond to God's word. And so before you would stand during this song, why don't you just take maybe the first verse as we sing and just ponder your view of marriage before today or before this series. And maybe you've been reminded that, oh yeah, marriage wasn't just some government thing to take more taxes from us or this or that, keep a census of people. Marriage was like from the beginning and there was supreme intentionality behind the designer. And you might even just think of your, your past and maybe you're you're married now and you just know man the way that we courted the way that we dated our engagement it wasn't how God says it needs to be done we did it our way and maybe now you know that there's a whole lot of baggage and just just sin and struggle 
because of that. Maybe you aren't married anymore and you can just look back and say, man, we didn't do it the Lord's way. Or whatever the situation, you can say, you know what? Here's the areas where we fell short of God's glory. He was this and I was this. And there was failure on our part. And today we can come before the cross of Christ where sinners and failures are welcome. And we can let him take upon himself all of our rebellions, all of our screw-ups, all of our mistakes, even the things that we didn't even mean to do that, that brought death and dying and suffering. And he takes it upon himself at the cross. He took it upon himself at the cross. And he paid for it. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead that husbands and wives and people who are estranged from their spouses and separated and divorced, they too can now walk in newness of life. There's a future and there's a hope. And even today, as we have been shown the, the ultimate purpose of marriage, that God be praised. We, get, we can begin living with the top buttoned fastened rightly in its place. Believing God that all the other things, love and respect and service and finances and conflict and sexual intimacy and childbearing and child raising and child disciplining and child discipling and work and hours and vacation and in-laws and outlaws and so on and so forth, each thing will begin to line up in the light of his glory and grace, the old hymn says. And so as we sing through this first lyric, just say, Lord, perhaps just you've reminded me today, or maybe even the first time that, that this is for your glory. And when you sense it's right and you just sense just the Lord has, has spoken to your heart and you've repented before him. You've confessed failures and fallings and you've cried out for his mercy and grace. Why don't you stand with us in this last song and just cry out for more of his image in your life, more of his image to be reflected off of you more of the world to see more of who he is through you and through your spouse and through your children, through your priorities, through your luxuries, through your hobbies and passions and desires as a family. And as we stand, let's just ask for more of him that this could be a reality in our homes that we can teach it to our children, we can teach it to the, the young ones around us. It's his design, it's for his glory. When you're ready, stand with us.